You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Look, as far as hobbies go, it's eco-friendly, basically free, and pretty unlikely to end an injury. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alex Rowland. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. And this is Episode 8, A Trip Over the Tongue. Right, so by the time this episode airs, this will be old news, Dollface. But today is kind of a big day for Alexandra Rowland <laughs> because today Choir of Lies is out in the world. How's it going? Uh, it's been a lot. Uh, people have been very kind and generous on on Twitter. Uh, there's been a lot of yelling. Ninety percent of the yelling has been me. Uh, 90% of my yelling has been mostly, you know, terror, uh, kind of house, kind of, you know, par for the course for book launch day. I'm sure you, you both know how that goes. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. But I think ter- terror is undeserved because having read Choir of Lies, it was really wonderful. People should be like running to their nearest bookseller, running people over, crashing through Thank windows you. to get a hold of it because it is, it's a lovely book. Thank you. I'm just going to do some shameless self-promotion then uh, and say that if you have not heard about this book, uh, it is the follow-up to A Conspiracy of Truths. You do not need to have read Conspiracy of Truths to appreciate and enjoy this book. Uh, They are both books about the power of stories. Uh, uh, The new one, A Choir of Lies, is about fantasy tulip mania and grief and recovery from trauma and sort of about how stories can heal us and community and hope punk and uh it's really queer it's really really very queer uh so yes please go buy it or at least shout about it on the internet yay yay uh do we have any other news or announcements um by the time this airs i believe this comes out the beginning of october so just after this airs i will be appearing at New York Comic Con the following weekend, Ooh. so that fancy, that's some, fancy. That's some. That's going to be some fancy fun stuff. So if you are attending New York Comic Con, you can come and say hello to me. And I think there will be an opportunity to get a free copy of Way of the Shield, which came out last year, and have it signed by me and look at my smiling face when I do it. Nice. <laughs> Excellent. And the sequel to that book, Shield of the People, will be coming out in the end of October. So you're going to hear me screaming about that more and more in the near future. So that's what I've got Hell going yeah. on. Fantastic. So this is kind of exciting. We have a little opportunity for you um, to consider, um, which is the writing the other world building class. So world building perspective of fiction can be pretty daunting and even more so if you want to create inclusive cultures that aren't, you know, accidentally replicating nasty colonial structures, mm. viewpoints with diverse characters that actually like aren't that diverse because they're just stereotypes and caricatures. Um, so this class is really focused on that and it's a kind of a deep dive into key aspects of world building and building inclusive worlds within that. So creating cultures, ideology, religion, cosmology, sociobiology, research, and the coolest part, I think, is that it's eight outstanding um, world builders. Um, and I'm going to list them for you. Max Gladstone, Kate Elliott, Nizi Shaw, Andrea Hairston, Tanana Reeve Dua, 
Jamie Goh, Lauren Jankowski, and Stephen Barnes. And a pretty cool thing is that because we know that you're already a giant world-building dorks, you get a $50 discount with the code WORLDBUILDCAST2019. So you can find details around that class schedule, time commitment, accessibility, financial aid um, at writingtheother.com. So I'm sure we'll be shouting about that some more. I feel it's very cool. I feel so fancy. Like <laughs> here we are giving people a discount code on our extremely legit podcast. Uh, we're so legit. We are so legit. We're so fancy. Wow, cool. Yes, great, good. <laughs> We've uh, made it now, finally. <laughs> we, we are. We're, we have we're arrived. Official. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, that sounds really cool. And if I had more time on my hands right now, I would be diving in along with everybody. Honestly, yes. I, I know several people who've taken this class and have highly benefited from it and loved it. So so I strongly recommend Excellent. if you have the means and the time and the wherewithal, this should be a thing you should do. That's fantastic. I am so excited about it. And I hope that our dear listeners uh, get a great benefit from it. Other things that benefit them, an episode. Shall we? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shall we move along? So, you know, it was funny because we were talking about, um, you know, our our world and how we were coming along with it. And we kind of realized, like, we need to name some things. Yeah. And, of course, being being the world-building masochists that we are, as soon as we brought up the possibility that we had to name some stuff, we realized that we had to talk about language and naming conventions and all kinds of stuff. So here's an episode about Yay. that. All about, about that. Because, yeah, I, too often in fantasy you see things where people clearly named things just out of slamming syllables together that sounded neat without any thought <laughs> of how they might actually work together or be part of the same language or culture. And I think it's important to do the work or at least do enough work that it looks like you did a lot more to make <laughs> to make things have a lot of more common sense and verisimilitude. Although yeah, agreed. Rowena, I think that so, you have a interesting I anecdote, do. right? I do. So um, when Torn first came out, I, I got a, a message from a reader. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it was a well-intentioned or if it was like a trying to noink me mm. kind of message. Um, but he asked me about um, expressions in the book that are anachronistic. So if you've read Torn, it's got kind of an 18th century vibe to it. And I definitely use expressions and language in the book that, that are later that it's not that the technology wasn't there for the expression to like been possible. So I don't use like, you know, jet pack or something in there. Um, but or anyway, telegraphed the, a punch. Exactly. Yeah. So, but, but they were, they were terms that did not exist. If you look up the etymology into the 19th century or later. Um, and in thinking about my answer to him, I kind of came back with like, look, if, if you really want to be pedantic about language in a second world fantasy, the characters aren't actually speaking English anyway. Yeah. Like we're, tra we're we're kind of like this is really getting out there, but we're really translating concepts that they would be thinking about in a language that we don't speak exactly into a language that our readers read, which for me is is English exactly. Um, and even if they were speaking English, they probably wouldn't be speaking our contemporary modern English. Like they might be speaking something closer to early modern English, like the way that Shakespeare spoke, or Middle English, like how Chaucer spoke. Uh, and Chaucer is only barely intelligible. Right, right. So it kind of made me want to start off this episode saying, how much do we think about this while we're writing, that we're doing this kind of underhanded translation thing? 
I think about it all the damn time. Yeah, me too. In that, <laughs> me like, too, honestly. I'm glad I'm not alone. Okay. But I'm, like, <laughs> constantly aware that I'm working in translation. And, and I'm constantly thinking about, like, is this an appropriate word, even in the sense of, like, I am translating to English, like, but does this fit? Two words that I went down a complete rabbit hole with. One is parliament, because mm. I was like, well, wait a minute, if there's if there's no France, then there's no root word parlay, then there's no... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so what, Marshall what, Ryan Maresca, I'm about to have this problem. <laughs> I am going to pick your brain about the par- <laughs> literally the parliament issue, because uh, I have been like wondering what I'm going to do. But like, you know, is this then an appropriate word for a government body that is you know and with that one i finally decided yes that's okay that one is okay yeah but here the other one that i really spent a lot of time dwelling on is in when i wrote um imposters of aventil is marathon Mm. because there's no marathon there's no marathon grace unless there's no particular origin no particular origin of that word of which to mean like a long running race so it was like is that an appropriate word for a long running race and i thought about it and i eventually came up with in the the world for that sporting event was just called an endurance which that worked for even though if i if i broke down the the derivation of the word endurance then it might fall apart then too i don't know That was Don't do that. <laughs> I would probably have erred on the side of using marathon just because it's easy, it's quick, my readers know what it means, and like not everyone is aware of the origin of the word marathon, yes. right? You know, I, I think that that's for me is, is where it would break down for me is, is this something that would jar the reader out of the story because yes. they have that connection or not? So I, I, I'm probably in the middle with you guys. I would probably be asking some other opinions if I really had like... But you always like stop and think about it. My best anecdote for this is while I was writing Conspiracy of Truths, there was one line where I wanted to describe someone as a loose cannon. And I realized that I have not yet given them <laughs> gunpowder for military purposes yet. They have fireworks. so And they use the fireworks for, like, signal flares and things like that. But they have not quite put two and two together and realized, like, oh, we can, like, aim this at people. Uh, so they don't have cannons. So I can't use the phrase <laughs> loose cannon. But in that case, it actually really worked out because the phrase that I came up with to replace it was so much more interesting and vibrant than the I think I did something about like rats and a sinking ship or or something like that I don't remember exactly what it was but like it was so much more interesting than just like a cliche like loose cannon that is a thing I I like to play with a lot is when I want to use an idiom that is clearly not an appropriate idiom for the world and then then take a little time to be like, okay, what would be a world-appropriate idiom that could mean the same thing? And that that is a fun world-building yes. exercise you can do to then play with the, the language usage you're using in terms of idioms and sayings that would fit your characters then. And that gives your that gives your book a lot more flavor. Absolutely. I um one of the ones in my the latest book that I'm working on, the third in the Unraveled Kingdom, I wanted to Wait, wait, wait. You didn't do the voice, Rowena. You have to do the voice. In my book. There you go. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to use the phrase, a soup sandwich, which have you guys even heard that one? No. That's, it's, I've it heard it, rolls, but I don't know okay, what it's. 
it rolls around and my husband's in the Navy and it rolls around in military parlance. Like it's someone who's like very well intentioned, but they are so useless at their job. Oh my like God. they're a soup sandwich. Like it just doesn't work. So I love it that. ended up being this deep dive that each person like shared from their culture. Like they're like, that's a cup with a hole in it. That that's a slotted spoon that, you know, can't hold soup. That's, yeah. a, that's a custard. That's a pie crust made of custard. Like kind of like what their expression was. So it was kind of a fun, like, showing their their backgrounds as well as what expression that they used and that's fucking delightful (laughs) so we think about it all the time how much do we make our readers think about it i think it goes back to like how much am i asking them to do and also how important is the word so for example in uh marshall ryan maresca's example about marathon if it was a book about marathon running I might come up with a new fancy fantasy world word for it, like some bullshit fantasy word. But if it's just like a one-off kind of line, like, oh yeah, then they ran a marathon, whatever, next chapter, then I would probably just use the word marathon. Um, because if it's something that's very important, I can ask my readers to think more about it and do a little bit more effort to understand exactly what I mean rather than using the word which is going to be an approximation. No, I I agree. And I think that there's a point at which it becomes laborious. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, I don't think that any of us want our readers describing the voice of our book as laborious. Yes. Like, it was very intelligent, but it it was really hard to get through because I had to keep thinking about the fact that this was a different world, like we've talked about before. Yeah the things like leaving negative space and letting our readers kind of fill in some gaps for themselves is part of what makes world building fluid and makes it readable. And I think that 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 is kind of important with that translating element too, that we're making it it fluid and not bogging it down with kind of making it it too, um, too much to think about. I completely agree. Like aiming for like, my goal is always for the reader to have an effortless experience. Um, If I am making them do work, I am making them do subconscious work, stuff that they're not going to think about, like with the negative space thing that you mentioned. But asking them to learn a bunch of fantasy words is asking them to do a lot of work. And that's where it becomes effortful. Right. You don't want them to feel like they always have to like go to the glossary to look something up every five minutes to like figure out how to read the book you wrote because it's so filled with extra work and jargon and terms that if they're if they don't if they don't become fluent in the language you're doing (laughs) then they're going to be lost right i I don't want my readers to feel like they have to read a book to read my book (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i mean yeah (laughs) so um our our listeners may not be aware alex um what your academic degree background is in so i i thought that i i might toss it over to you um to our our linguist friend here to give us some basic language awareness like parameters to think about here sure so um i had a bachelor's degree in English. Uh, That was my major and I minored in linguistics. So uh, some interesting terms to know about. Uh, I minored in linguistics because I was like, maybe one day I will need to invent a fantasy language. And I think that that will be important. Uh, If it was good enough for Tolkien, it's good enough for me. And I haven't actually done that much language building Specifically, I have, like, I don't do conlangs, but I do 
have an awareness of orthography and I have an awareness of how language is used and I have an awareness of language interaction across cultures and language families and sort of a more broad spectrum of it. So vo- vocab word orthography can you Ooh, can you define that, that for us? Spelling. Spelling. Basically. I mean like that's really simplifying it, but the actual definition of it is the conventional spelling system of a language or the study of spelling and how letters combine to represent sounds and form words. Uh, so that means like how a language is represented. We all know what spelling is. I mean, I'm like over explaining this to you because it's interesting. But the way that you represent a language on the page, this is something that I lean very hard on because when I am inventing fantasy words for a fantasy culture, a lot of times I will sort of vaguely model it on something that at least echoes or rhymes with something in real life. And I mean like a very figurative sort of rhyming. Not the words themselves rhyming, but the concepts are rhyming with something in the real world. Uh, So for example, I have just finished a manuscript that takes place in fantasy Turkey. Uh, So I'm using the Turkish orthography system to to name things places people because that helps keep it consistent it helps give me a framework so that i don't have to build an entire language to know how it sounds and it means that people can make conclusions about it based just on the familiarity of the language uh so for example if i am If I name something with a word that sounds Russian, because of the preconceptions and ideas that we have from the real world, people will be more likely to make conclusions and and inferences based on just that word, just based on the spelling of it and how it sounds. Uh, Whereas if I just come up with some like bullshit fantasy term, they don't have any context for that whatsoever and they can't make any inferences about it. So creating, again, kind of that space for readers to make the conclusions for themselves instead of having to think way too hard about it. Right, right. Although that technique can create trouble for you that you might not want. True. Because you will craft a, at least a language base for the cultures you're doing that will spark a familiarity sometimes that maybe was not your intention. Yes. And thus people will do that. They will fill the negative space with what they think your intention must be, then start to make decisions or, or judgments about what you did based on that that presumption. It's definitely something that... Yes. Like going back to choose versus presume, this is something that you want to do very carefully if you do it this way. Uh, You have to have an awareness of how language works. You have to have at least a sort of structural idea of how that particular language works. And you preferably want to have a native speaker uh, because when you make up a fantasy word in this vaguely real world language, uh, you kind of want to test it on them and make sure that you're not accidentally coming up with a word in a real language that means something like especially something like yeah like ass yeah. or something like that you're like oh man yeah. or also just like an awareness that this is not a word that would ever occur this doesn't taste right to a native speaker of this language i always like to 
And it only takes like like 10, 15 minutes, tops, tops, to just like check with someone on Twitter and say like, hey, does this sound okay? Does this feel good in your mouth? A lot of times they'll say almost maybe change like these two letters and that sounds and feels much more natural. Well, I think that even if you aren't basing something on a real language, doing that yourself and actually saying out loud anything that you are creating an invented language is pretty important as a check because mm-hmm. I have definitely written out things that looked really beautiful on the page. And then when I like said them out loud, I was like, oh, Ew. that sounds like asparagus. That wasn't what I intended <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, yes. that's not going to be right. Yes, yes. And I, so, I have done things where I've played with creating a language and then created sounds that work together, but then in an attempt to transliterate that for to do the orthography for it, then looked god awful in mm. in mm-hmm. that process of it even though on a sound level like i could make it work and it's it sounded interesting but it looked like hot garbage on the page <laughs> yeah yeah i have also speaking of orthography as long as we're on it um i have big feelings about the prejudice that the current fantasy writers industry has against uh diacritic marks and apostrophes and some of this is rightfully so because it comes like the hatred that we have for this comes from a long tradition the last like 20 or 30 years of fantasy writers trying to be tolkien and having like no linguistic background whatsoever and not actually realizing what an apostrophe in the middle of the word it was it does linguistically (laughs) It was apostrophe abuse. Yeah. We had yeah, some like, we had some apostrophe abuse happening. We have to own that. We did. People <laughs> would just I throw in apostrophes because it looked neat and then Because but... it looked neat because it makes it a fantasy word. Exactly. Right. Um, but I think that it's time that we reclaim the apostrophe in the middle of the word, and I am going to be doing this later in the episode, actually. Uh, same thing with diacritic marks. Uh if you use them wisely and tastefully, then they can add a real beauty to your fantasy language. and Like a visual beauty and a uh, sort of sound beauty as well. It gets you using different vowels. Uh, you can do some exciting things with consonants as well. There's some consonants that have diacritic marks, uh, and I'm very excited about them. By the way, a jargon term. If you don't know what a diacritic mark is that's like the little marks above a, a letter like the dots over a u that's like an, an umlaut i love saying that word it's such a fun word to say umlaut, umlaut. yes uh or like the e grave with which is the the in french it goes a which is the e with the little boop sort of the, da- the dash it's, yeah it's except little... it's like yeah. it's like an apostrophe but over the e it's the e with the boop yeah. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, you know what it's I'm talking about. It's a boop. It's a boop. That's a yeah. technical term in, in linguistics. It's, it's a, a letter, letter boop. boop. Yeah. It's a letter boop. <laughs> These are technical terms, people. So, technical terms. <laughs> E-boop. Uh, so, er- earlier, Alex, you used a term that I kind of okay. want to come back to and, like, define and get into a little bit more. You said conlang. Yes. Can you um, tell us what we mean by that? And then can we dive into that yes, a little indeed. bit more? Yes, indeed. So a conling is just a, a portmanteau, which is another thing I can define for you. A portmanteau is a <laughs> word that is made up of two words squished together. Like uh, Brangelina. So, <laughs> like Brangelina, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> conling is short for constructed language. So this is like Klingon or Tolkien's Elvish languages or that 
very bad one that Christopher Paolini came up with in Aragon, that sort of stuff. It's what I got a degree for. We have we have a few examples. So you mentioned Klingon, which mm-hmm. I think everyone like can go to immediately. Does anyone have any other examples of like lesser known uh, ones? Dothraki got a lot of notice after after okay. Game of Thrones. Dothraki. Yeah, they, yep. they, yeah. They at least did some of the work in that. I don't know how how much work they did, but they did they did a fair amount of work on I, that one. As far as I know, they did a great deal. Um, like I'm pretty sure that Dothraki is a like legitimately speakable language. I think that they had like a for the the TV show. I want to say that they had a linguistic, a linguistics person come on and build it for that's them. That's cool. That's that's same thing that yeah. they did right. for Klingon. Yeah, I mean, I definitely haven't like rewatched all of the Dothraki like language parts, but I, I felt like yeah. you could you could feel some consistency with it. Um, yeah. That that there was some consistency of of structure and and whatnot. Um, how, you said, that, Alex, you don't really play with conlangs in your books thus far. Um, Is it some you've played with otherwise? I I used to. There was one book that I wrote a long time ago which had a conlang, and I spent a great deal of time on it, and it was trash. Um, honestly, it was it was trash. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like seventeen. Um, the most that I do now is like a word or sometimes a phrase i don't ever go to the to the length of like entire sentences uh right just because like why (laughs) so a why i um i did not intend in many ways when i started writing um the series i'm doing now to to do the conlang thing who's who's in my book (laughs) my series um but then i realized that the story necessitated the protagonist traveling to different places and so she was going to have to like encounter languages outside her own to a greater degree so Mm. the the own language i'm kind of translating the experience from there's there's not much within that but then she's spending a lot of time other places so i realized i had to have her as this outsider hearing this language and have it kind of make it onto the page in some ways so it and it's interesting because it's like i have notes sketched out for like a few pages for like just a few lines that end up in the book because i wanted to make sure that my grammar was consistent that i was kind of using i do this weird like suffix prefix thing with the language to kind Mm. of keep some consistency that you can see even just between a few sentences on the page Mm. but yeah it's it's interesting to play with the conlang thing with actually writing it in but that was again i wouldn't have done it if it didn't feel necessary to the storyline and it kind of did right i mean and there might be contexts like there i don't discount the possibility that i may do more of this in the future it's just that for the books that I have written now, it was not necessary and right. or important. So, right. And why why drag yourself through it? Well, because we're because we're because we're nerds. But why drag your reader through it? Right. It's <laughs> much more important to. to respect your readers than it is to yeah. respect yourself. <laughs> your own boundaries. <laughs> Let's move on in and talk about sort of written versus spoken language. Rowena, you put some interesting dot points here about the impact of written and spoken language on culture? So one thing I was kind of thinking about, especially like in the interplay of our different cultures that we're talking about in our world, and also when we talked about things like technology, whether your language is primarily spoken or whether it's primarily written. Mm. And I think that kind of having an awareness of that is it's kind of important. Um, so kind of like a random, very detailed aside, but um, if you think about the fact that like English was really not standardized in terms of its spelling in 
until roughly 1800 we started caring about that and you started getting at least in America you got dictionaries coming out that standardized spelling to a degree that we could really work with and you have 18th century dictionaries too but then you compare them to the way that people are spelling and it's all over the place and it kind of indicates like this interplay between how important is the spoken language versus how important is the written language and where are we on that transition between those and how standardized is a language so it's kind of something to consider I don't know that you necessarily want to be you know spelling things differently all over your book but having an understanding that you know if you have a culture that is not writing things down either because of technology or um, because of um, how their culture works that language might kind of function a little bit differently one Mm. one thing that always sorts of drives me crazy is that if you do a conlang or at least fake your way enough in through one that it has consistency and this goes back to transliteration and orthography if you do one that has spelling rules like like english in the sense of like things that can be really weird and wacky you will just confuse your reader even more (laughs) Because so if you're gonna if you're gonna make a conlang, don't base it on English. Don't base it on English, but also damn, we suck. Like, I I sometimes walk this line of like, well, I want it to be realistic, but if I do that, it'll be far more impenetrable to the reader, and mm. I don't want to do that. So, so that that yeah, that is, is always a thing I, I juggle. <laughs> yeah, English is terrible with that. English is the worst because the worst <laughs> because worst. we like lock down spelling on things before we lock. And pronunciation still drifted, and so you would have things where the spelling fit the old pronunciation, but we moved mm-hmm. on from that, and now we have weird rules like silent K's at the beginning. <laughs> right. Well, and and we did and we did things like stealing words from other languages and just kind of like beating these words out of these languages and then like taking them for ourselves without really adopting them in yes. in intelligent ways all like, the time. For for example, uh, in the modern day, a man in armor on horseback is called a knight. In Middle English, which Chaucer spoke, uh, that was pronounced knisht. So you pronounce the K and you pronounce every other letter. <laughs> but like, yeah, if you did a con language, like sometimes the K is silent. Sometimes that G is silent. People would be yeah. like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing this to yourself? Who would ever do this to themselves? Who would ever do this to themselves? <laughs> Uh, um, I have another cool sort of linguistics anecdote for you about sort of the impact of spoken language on uh, culture and so forth. And that is to educate you a little bit about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Have either of you heard of this? I have heard of it, but I forget what it is. Tell us more, Alex. So the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, uh, otherwise known as linguistic relativity, is... Uh, a theory of linguistics that says that the language that you speak affects the ways in which you think. So, for example, a language that doesn't have a future tense under the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis says that they don't think about the future, which is not really like, by the way, (laughs) this is a myth. Like the linguistics field does not accept this as like a valid hypothesis anymore. This is not real. However, it's kind of cool to think about, especially in the context of fantasy worlds, especially if you are, or fantasy and science fiction, both, especially if you are thinking about non-human languages, because the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis 
totally is not true for human languages, but that doesn't mean that it can't be true for alien languages. This was used to great effect in the movie Arrival. So in that movie, if you haven't seen it, these aliens arrive and they send a linguist to figure out how to talk to them. And as she learns the language, it changes the way that her brain is structured. And she starts experiencing time in the same way that the aliens experience time, which is to say all at once. So that is pretty nifty. Still a myth, though. This is not yes. how it works for human <laughs> languages. <laughs> though I think it is the the it would be say the converse, the inverse, the opposite of it. If you flip it around is interesting in that I think that language often can express how a culture thinks about things or how yes. an individual thinks about things within that culture. Um, I had a French professor who I might, my, my one of majors in, in college was French, um, but he would always say prepositions are the hardest thing in any language because they express how a culture thinks about mm. space. So like, why are we on yeah. a bus? I don't know. That's just how we think about it. Why aren't we in a bus? Right. Exactly. Why are we, you know, what exactly? With the bus or about the bus. With the bus, bus, about the bus. I mean, in some context, I would say we are in a bus if the bus was not moving. Like if the bus was, (laughs) if the bus was parked somewhere and we were not um, inside the bus for the purposes of being transported from one place to another, if we were just like hiding out in the bus like if we'd bought some booze and we were just like breaking into the parked bus to like get drunk inside the bus i would say we're in a bus rather than we are on a bus (laughs) yet i'd have a very hard time breaking the habit of saying on the bus yeah so the change of the bus from a location to a mode of transport changes changes exactly which yeah crazy yeah I'm trying to think about like other contexts now. Like, would I ever say over a bicycle? No. If I if if someone like pushed me and I and I went like yeah, ass I over mean, tits yeah, over the bicycle, that might. Work. But that's like describing like a a sort of the situation where you are yes. rather than where the bike is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let's get away from this. We could yes, spend the whole we rest could of the hour. really go down a down this a hill on that one. Is some dumb shit. <laughs> But that's what you can do with creating your language and creating the way your culture interacts with things is play with all those little ideas of what prepositions mean and what, you know, what's the object and what's the subject of the sentence and things like that. Yeah. So if you want to dive into like creating rules for language and kind of having some consistency in a language that you're using in a fantasy world, where can we start with language rules? All the way back to an alphabet, basic building blocks. Oh, alphabet is like four or five steps in. Like (laughs) alphabet alphabet is not like the first step. And I think that's the mistake a lot of like people who try to conlang and not know what they're doing. That's the mistake they make is thinking alphabet is first rather than fourth or fifth. Right, right, right. So the very basic building blocks are phonemes and morphemes. Um, Phonemes are the individual sounds. So like s is a morpheme and m is a morpheme uh or sorry phonemes those are phonemes because those are like the very very basic ones uh morphemes are more like little chunks of sound and that is the smallest possible meaningful group of sounds in a language so for example the word pre would be a morpheme like we know what that is that is a prefix that means before that's so that's the basic building blocks first if you start from the very beginning, you come up with phonemes, then you put those together into morphemes, and then you can start like sticking morphemes together to make stuff. 
So after you have phonemes and morphemes, the next step of the process is coming up with your core vocabulary. This is the most common nouns and verbs that occur in the language. So hand, eye, mouth, fire, sky, that sort of thing. Um, it's going to be parts of the body. It's going to be the most common items around you. And it's going to be things from nature. And then your basic verbs. Then you can start, I mean, you can probably do alphabet before that if you want to, because that's kind of related to like the phonemes and morphemes thing. But this is like, if you're doing like the really masochist version of this, like you can skip <laughs> yes. a couple of I, these steps. I kind of feel like it's important to point out at this point that this is not necessary for having like a few names from a language in, in right. your book. We are right. going the deep dive here. Yeah. Like um, you can, we will give you some resources at the end if you just need a fucking name. <laughs> <laughs> so, and one thing that I always find kind of interesting to talk about too is the concept of, of grammar. Um, because once you start, you have like actual words and start putting them together, um, we start to get into the concept of grammar, which is how words get put together in mm -hmm. some kind of standardized way. And I think it's really important to kind of think about that grammar, we often use it like from you know elementary school on, we use grammar to mean academic correctness. Yes. Do you use proper grammar? And really, it's more about the conventions that a culture uses. So like... African-American vernacular English, rural American grammar, those are grammars. Yeah. They're not academic English grammar, but they are correct in what they do and that they're a standardized grammar that is using particular conventions um, to express ideas. Yes. yes. Um, and I... I'm just joyfully getting to rant about like all my linguistics opinions this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, so these are all dialects, right? And a dialect is any sort of subcategory of the language that has its own uh, internal logic and structure. So African-American vernacular English is a completely legitimate dialect. It has consistent rules. It yes. is a almost a language in and of itself, right? Except that has overlap with other dialects in the language. It is mutually intelligible uh, to other dialects that are spoken under the umbrella of English. Anyone who tells you that your dialect is wrong or bad or stupid is a prescriptivist asshole and you have my permission to punch them. <laughs> One of my favorite things that I would say I used to teach um, first year composition in like college and I loved telling my students like your grammar is not wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't care what grammar you're using. It's not wrong. You're using a grammar. I'm here to teach you academic English grammar that you're kind of expected to use in this particular little box of a setting. And that's yep. what we're going to do here. But you're not you're not wrong. So, I, yeah, I think that that's kind of an important thing. And also to think about, again, you talk about dialect, the variation within a language that comes out of all kinds of different cultural and geographic impacts on mm -hmm. on how people are speaking. Mm -hmm. And dialects are always growing and changing and fluid. I mean, language is always fluid. The way that we speak now is not the same as the way that we spoke 10 years ago. And it's certainly not the same as the way that we spoke 50 years ago. It's Which is wildly different from the way that we spoke 400 years ago. Uh, so it's something that is always growing. And I think that's really cool. Did you know another cool linguistics fun fact? I'm sorry, I'm taking up all of our time with nonsense. Uh, You're the expert. The most linguistically creative demographic is young women. Uh, so if linguists want to study the sort of 
bleeding edge of how language is evolving and changing, they study young women. And the most linguistically conservative uh, demographic is old rural white men. Uh, so if we want to study the way that the language was spoken like 10, 15 years ago, or a little bit more than that, we speak to that demographic, just because we have noticed that these are the people that hold on to language as hard as possible. And these are people that are playing with language and sort of making it their bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think this raises like... Is that an academic term? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> I feel like it raises a really good point, though, about like, okay, so, so you know, you're, you're creating a language, you've got kind of basic building blocks to cobble together, you create a grammar, but then you actually have the way people actually use it. And that can vary enormously depending on what people are doing with language, mm -hmm. why it's being used, where it's being used. And I think that that kind of gets to be in some ways where the richness of what we get to do in world building can kind of come in, um, especially if you're not, you know, creating an entire conlang for your your world or your universe, but you've got, you know, a few key pieces that you really need to bring in for your story, whether it's um, naming or terminology, that usage part gets kind of fun. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So you talked about about usage. Uh, let's talk about usage on more of a meta level. Like, let's take a moment to just like angst about how terrible it is that like we as fantasy writers like have to fucking name rivers and cities and mountain ranges and it's very bad it's a bad situation who thought this was a good idea <laughs> and it has to like be kind of consistent within a world right uh, like if it's gonna feel good there has to be some consistency in how stuff gets named i hate naming rivers nothing sounds right nothing sounds like a river name you know i can name people just fine i can name countries pretty well but naming a river no no so sir i I had a, a major river that comes up in, in my book, um, and I totally just named it for a river near my house. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I was like, the Rock River. Sure. sure. We're going to go with that. Sounds like a river name. And then this town is going to be Rock's Ford, because what do you name towns for on rivers? Like, the stuff that you do at the river, like the Ford, or yep. the Ferry, or yep. the Bluff, or, you know... The rapids, like how many names, if we think about in English, are... Just descriptive. Like, exactly. Yeah. Like Grand Rapids. Yeah, just That's descriptive. because it's the Grand River and there are rapids. <laughs> um, one of the things I did in my books... <laughs> you could very do good, it in a weirder good. voice than that, Marshall. Re All right. One of the things I did in my books... <laughs> there we go, okay. Is that better? Thank you. Yeah. Um, because the nation of Druthal is then broken into archduchies and then the archduchies are broken into regions, I felt free to then play with the idea that rivers tended to have the same name as the region they're going through. So that that was a way that felt consistent and... Yeah, natural, pretentious. How, how the actual naming conventions of rivers should end up going so that that made life a lot easier along those lines but also having then beyond that not necessarily not doing the whole language work but doing that basic you know define the phonemes define the orthography so that i knew how words were created in that part of the world yeah. and use that as 
the way to then figure out naming conventions for everything else. Yeah. We have a dot point here about naming human people, and I think that this is an entirely different episode because <laughs> um, <laughs> we're already starting to run long, and I could rant for at least 10 minutes about the different sorts of surnames that there are, even just in medieval English. Yes. Uh, like descriptive by names versus locative by names versus occupational by names versus like family surnames yeah yes it's a lot i think i just i think we can put a pin in actually naming human people and just kind of leave it at that the things that people name themselves and name their children um are very much related back to how the language works as a whole and how that language reflects cultural norms so kind of keeping Mm -hmm. that in mind can be can be helpful once you get there yes so we have been talking about our fantasy world for a while and we keep calling it our fantasy world we keep talking about rowena's archipelago and alex's desert and marshall's bit up there north (laughs) um (laughs) shall we like name some stuff in our own world and like now talk about how we do now we're really playing god we're naming things too (laughs) naming stuff oh god finally who wants to start i think alex wants to start (laughs) okay well that's because i already put my name uh like the name of my place on the thing uh so i am going to name so i have this desert culture uh in the southern hemisphere and uh as you may recall from the the Uh, magic episode they have just the magical ability to sense magic that's it uh and some other cool stuff and i really like them they have those water gourds in the ground and i have decided to do my usual trick which is to pick a real world orthography to base it off of and so i'm going to use arabic orthography Uh, I do not speak Arabic, but I used Google Translate for one word, and that word is al-ard. Who wants to guess what al-ard means? Is it the world? It's just the land, actually. It just (laughs) means the land. Because a lot of, like, place names for nations are either named after, like, a tribe that lives there. Uh, For example, England is named after the Angles, or it's just the land right so yes my place will be called al-ard and it does have an apostrophe in it of course it does <laughs> but i am defending this because it is not a useless fantasy apostrophe this is an apostrophe that is doing some work it stands for a glottal stop which is a thing that you do in your throat and i don't have time to explain this google it Glottal stops are awesome. Glottal stops are awesome. So yes, if you're going to have a an apostrophe in your word, totally fine to do. Just it means something. It's not there as decoration. Right. And try saying it out loud before you really commit to it. And if you can't, yeah. eh, reconsider. Yeah. I, I definitely have in my book, um, one, of the, one of the foreign cultures, I do have apostrophes in there, but they are of specific they are they are glottal stops and they are doing they're doing the work that they that they need to do marshall ryan maresca do you have some (laughs) ideas you'd like to share with us um well do i i'm i'm trying to decide like what i want my my mediterranean-esque extroverts like what their what their what their culture is and what they want to be called and because i do not have 
the linguistic background that Alexander Jane Rowland has is mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of the tools I really like, and we will put a link to this in our in our show notes for y'all, is called Vulgar. The, the website is vulgarlang.com. It's a beautiful, fun little tool that you do need, you need to do a little bit of the work in terms of learning learning your international phonetic alphabet and thus learning all the different phonemes and figuring out stuff from there. But once you get the hang of how this program works, you can make little choices and then press a button and boom, you get a language with its own, you know, its own phonology and spelling and grammar and how sentences are constructed and the morphology of things and a small dictionary. And it's awesome. It's a lot mm-hmm. of fun. For example, you can cheat and have it just be like make the more make the phonology the same as Spanish or as Swedish or as Hawaiian if those are things you want to do, or you can go nuts and really do it from the beginning if that's what you want to do. Yeah, I've played around with it a couple times. It's a pretty neat tool. It is a neat tool, especially if you're doing, if you want to have a bunch of languages and thus have a few different places that have their own specific rules and each area then feels very realistic and if you yeah if you want to do sort of the big masochistic world build where you have Mm. you know 12 different continents and thus you need 12 base languages to to do naming conventions out of or even more then that's a good place to start and then you can do things like name each place the land in their language yep yep it's legit (laughs) because why not Marshall Ryan Mareska, you're stalling. I am so stalling, (laughs) and you knew that I was. (laughs) Because I've been all this time just generating new language until I got something that I liked the name of. (laughs) This is what I was doing all this time while spinning along my semi-brilliance. Do you need help? (laughs) The problem is, okay, so now the challenge... I'm not going to say problem. I'm going to say the challenge with this program is in creating stuff from random is you either get stuff that seems really basic and you're like, ugh, I don't like that. Or you get stuff that's really bizarre and you're also like, ugh, I don't like that. Uh, (laughs) I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the one I just got, and maybe I'll just take this just as like, no, take the random thing and and run with it, is Griastiar, which is a mouthful. (laughs) It is. How do you spell G-R-I-A-S-T-I-A-R. that? G-R-I-A-S-T-I-A-R. I don't really like it. I don't it. like it, it either. It feels like a bullshit You know, but he, here's, here's the thing. I know that often when I am drafting early on, I'll just go with something and then search and replace as your friend. That's, That's true. true. So, That's true. This is a lesson well, in world building that sometimes you just have to throw something in there, try it out for a while, and like, then be like, no, let it roll sucks. and something and better comes along and you're like, yes, that's what I wanted all along. And sometimes it grows on you. Yes. Or, or it inspires something else. Although yeah. a friend of mine in her second book, she like had just like the, this is a placeholder name because I don't have a real name yet. And put that in. But then that ended up being published in the second book. And then the third <laughs> book, she needed that character to be like a ma- more major character. But was already like, but I actually hate that name. But I'm stuck mm. with it. <laughs> That's hilarious. So another thing that I do sometimes is, or that you can do, is you can take this word like grastiar. It's not quite right. 
So we can just like tweak it ourselves. Like I like it a little bit better if it's you take out the I and you take out the R. Uh, Griastan. Griastan. Even like, just putting in an A, R I like better. N. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Griasta. Griasta. I like it. Griasta. I could. I could go with Griasta. Yeah. And then Griastan is the uh, adjective is, form. Yes, yes. is the adjective yeah. form. I like cool. it. Cool. Yeah. Let's go with that. Griasta. Sure. Yes. So that will be the name of Marshall's bit. My my yes. Mediterranean extroverts who love everyone and want everyone to <laughs> come on over and have and enjoy and have a party and enjoy their nice. beautiful land. Very good, Rowena. Tell us yes. about your archipelago. So so coming back to the concept of translating, um, if I was writing from the perspective of this archipelago, I would remember that they they're and I don't want to use the word term confederacy because that has certain a republic connotations for us but it's it's a a link up of multiple different principalities that kind of all are independent but but they work together and are linked yeah um so what I came up with for my English term was the concert of states um because they're also like that really like musical music is a huge part of their culture so so i i went dorky on that one so the concert of states and then i kind of played with starting to think about their language and kind of made up how it would work in their language i made all not the term for states and lear the term for concert Uh so all not lear and then you add an e on the end all not leary for like the thing that is like like to have done it so like concerted states so that that's where I went with with that. Oh, so is it concert of states or is it concerted states? Concert of, concert states, of states. But okay. then I kind of played with the concept of the, of the grammar being like this is an adjective form, right? Modifying is, the thing before it. It's been done to the thing before. This is the it, possessive. So. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I love that. I love both of those names. Both like the mean, just like concert of states. Marshall, Ryan, Mareska, and I both immediately went like, Ooh, <laughs> sexy. <laughs> nice. That's really. Good. It's almost like you're a professional writing person. Who yeah, has great I can ideas. do this. Or but also, then just like the name of it in the language, just like tastes good and it looks good. Like, yeah. oh, thank you. Love that. And also, I love that we all three of us had such unique ways of I'm approaching this, uh, and they all sound uh, distinct. They all look distinct. Like, I can very much believe that Griasta has a very different language family than Alnat Liri. Uh, is it Alnat Liri or Alnat Lir? How, how do you say this again? Alnat Liri. Yeah. Okay, cool. Got to get that glottal stop in there for there that apostrophe. Yeah. Uh, cool, cool. It's got to do uh, the work. It can't just hang out. Can't just hang out there. There for a reason. Pay your rent. <laughs> Uh, So we are running close to the end of the episode. Shall we take a minute or two to talk about uh, each of us probably has like a favorite resource for coming up with names for things? Do we? Well, I've already talked. Uh, I spent my stalling time there. Talking, oh, yeah, that's true. Talk, you spent your stalling time talking about Vulgar, which again I highly recommend. There'll be links in the in the episode description stuff, yep. and it's a really good resource. You again. You need to do. You need to do a little bit of study in terms of some basic linguistics. But like once you get the hang of that, it's a great tool to let you make languages from absolutely nothing without having to do sort of the grind work. Nice. Uh, my favorite naming resource. Uh, this is usually what I use for naming people, but you can also use it for 
place names. Uh, it is the Medieval Names Archive, which is at www.s-gabriel.org names. And this is a resource that is used by people in the Society for Creative Anachronism. It is a um, just a collection of uh, usually articles, but also like a bunch of lists showing names that were in use throughout the medieval period. So like the year 600 to the year 1600. And it's grouped by region. So you have names from the Low Countries, Occitan and Catalan names, Irish and Manx names, Pictish names, classical Roman names, all sorts of new stuff. Uh, and so it means that I used a lot because I like names that look like names. And so names that but aren't going to be names that are super common in the modern period or that are currently in use. So we have a bunch of names that really fell out of popularity after the medieval period. Uh, and, but they still like sound like names to our to our ear. And I think that this is a great resource for that. And also like you can sort of guesstimate the orthography of a language based on like the names of people and find interesting bits of orthography that seem very foreign to an English-speaking ear. Or an English-speaking tongue, I guess. Ears don't speak. Uh, <laughs> so for, like, a W, not in terms of a W, like, at the beginning of the word water, but, like, U, U at the beginning of a name doesn't make any sense in English whatsoever. But in there, there are several uh, languages that were common in the medieval era that used things like that. So it helps love push it. you out of your comfort zone. I love it. Rowena, do you have a favorite? So I have two very random places to pop to. And one is more about like just kind of language use and not necessarily naming things. But one thing that I recently became aware of are the sheer number of historical dictionaries mm. on Google Books. So if you just kind of want to see like how language was used at a certain point, in the past few hundred years, you can just um, go on Google Books and look up dictionary and start playing. So that can be fun. And it can also be fun to see how usage of words has changed because some of those words are going to be different than they were, um, you know, from 200 years ago, 100 years ago now. So that can be kind of a fun play. And in terms of naming stuff, like naming people, I will totally cop to having used um, a baby naming oh. resource which is um, nameberry.com because it's the it if you give it a name like you're not like I kind of like this aesthetic but I'm not quite there yet it'll spit out things in a similar oh, aesthetic so you can kind of play with like browsing through an aesthetic rather than necessarily hitting a particular language or a particular origin and that can kind of because it'll give you what the origins of the names are and kind of lead you back to like wow I'm really hitting up a lot of Norwegian names or I'm hitting up a lot of Caribbean names when I'm kind of trying to find yeah. an aesthetic. So it's kind neat, of fun to play neat. with. Uh, any other final thoughts on language or anything like that? I think just keeping in mind that we just did the deep dive and that this is not necessary for creating a livable and readable fantasy yes. world. Um, that if you're going to use a, a made up language in your work, you want to be aware of this stuff. But clearly, many people have written wonderfully successful books that don't do this. So this is fun, but don't feel like we've just like... <laughs> 
given you impossible I feel, homework I feel like for we your give fantasy world. That disclaimer in like every episode, like you don't we do. have to we be do. us. It's it's you really given. don't have to be us, <laughs> but you could if you want to, because it's kind of fun. <laughs> it's the moral of the whole exactly. the whole podcast, really. Our target audience is pretty much. You kind of want to. You kind of want to, though, don't you? You kind (laughs) of want to. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. I only got to rant about half of my linguistics thoughts and opinions, but I think that we can save the rest for another time. As useful as my minor has been in my fantasy writing career, I sometimes wonder what sort of writer I would have turned into if I had minored instead in world history or anthropology, which would also be really useful backgrounds for a baby fantasy writer to develop. I guess we'll never know. Anyway, our next episode goes up on October 16th. We will be joined by another glamorous guest star, RJ Theodore, author of the books Flotsam and Salvage. She'll be chatting with us about family structures. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We have also recently opened up our Discord chat to the general public. There will be a link to that in the About the Show page of our website. So go check it out and come talk to us and other fantasy fans about how to build your neat worlds. Uh, Here's your cool fact of the day. English contains 11 basic color terms. Black, white, red, green, yellow, blue, brown, orange, pink, purple, and gray. Italian, Russian, and Hebrew have 12. They distinguish light blue as a separate color from dark blue. 